Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wonderful deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. Well, if you haven't already, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 26. Psalm chapter 26. I wonder how did it go for us this last week? Did we have opportunity to live out what we learned from Psalm 25? I hope so. Did you look to God for guidance? Did you find his gracious guidance as you looked for it uh, by his spirit and from his word? If you remember from last week in Psalm 25, we uh, were looking into a psalm where David is crying out to God for divine guidance. He makes that cry in uh, real specific ways in verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 25. And he looks to God to deliver him from his troubles, from his afflictions. He cries out for deliverance from the burden and guilt of his sin through confession and repentance. And he also enjoys friendship with the Lord as he approaches God with fear and reverence. What kind of life can we expect from someone who is walking in the guidance of God? Psalm 25 and Psalm 26 go together in uh, communicating God's truth. They're not separate islands that you can kind of look at individually. Um, they really are meant to flow from one into the next. What becomes important to a person who lives in the guidance of God? What kind of prayers are going to form in the heart of a person who walks in the friendship of the Lord as he experiences God through reverence? Well, Psalm 26 shows us that. Psalm 26 really is showing us the results of living in the guidance, independence on God's guidance from Psalm 25. Psalm 26 shows us what it looks like to live like that. So really the main idea in Psalm 26 is we're going to learn that a person who receives God's guidance, Psalm 25, and walks in God's ways, Psalm 25, finds stability in life. That's Psalm 26. That really is where this whole psalm is driving. And of course, there's difficulty that David is surrounded by. There's trouble that he is surrounded with. There's evil people that are working uh, for his uh, harm. But his final description of a life that is lived ordered around God's guidance is a life that you see in verse 12 of Psalm 26, a life that says, I stand on level ground. That's really where this whole psalm is driving for is that phrase of stability, of standing on level ground. So in other words, walking in God's guidance brings stability into one's life. That's how Psalm 25 and Psalm 26 go together. So this is good, right? I mean, who of us uh, doesn't long to have a life of stability, a life that we could describe in the poetic terms of stable, level ground, especially as we look at the news headlines, as we've experienced life over the past 12 weeks, things feel very unstable. Changes, news headlines, all of this getting swirled around, chaos. Who doesn't want to have a solid and steady life? 
Well, I bet you do, I do, and so does the psalmist. So it's good news that we get to look into this together from Psalm 26. So for the purposes of this sermon, we're going to organize Psalm 26 into two main sections. Verses 1 through 8, we're going to discover that David is yearning for God's glory. So somebody who walks in God's guidance is going to be preoccupied with God's glory. And then verses 9 through 12, the second section, we will learn that David stands firm in God's redeeming grace. David yearns for God's glory in verses 1 through 8. Uh, you might puzzle at how or why I would make this really the main point of David yearning for God's glory because as you read it, I mean, just right out of the gates, it sounds like it's very kind of a David-focused psalm. I mean, you see it there? Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is ever before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. There's a lot of eyes in me and my in those first couple of verses, right? So when we read through verses 4 through 8, David doesn't slow down on this you know, confession of what he's doing. You know, I don't sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. Verse 5, verse 6, he keeps talking about, I, I, this is what I'm doing. And of course, all this flows out of his, is his prayer of vindicate me, God. So again, at a quick reading, all of this might make us think that David is quite full of himself. I mean, he's really preoccupied with himself here. And he seems almost maybe he's trying to impress God with his track record of righteous living and moral accomplishments. So as we consider that, of course, our Christian, our gospel-ordered sensibilities would react to that notion. We would all know that that's not the gospel. That's not how you have a relationship with God. So what's really happening here? I believe David's opening cry for vindication is not selfishly motivated, but is ordered around God's glory. And I'm going to prove this to us from this text as we work through it together, okay? That's really going to be the aim of this first section, understanding how it is that David is yearning for God's glory. But we need to remember that that is flowing out of Psalm 25. A person who walks in the guidance of God will have a heart that yearns or is preoccupied with the glory of God. So this idea of vindication, uh, we often think it's really the sense of, you know, a judgment's been made, it's the wrong judgment, you're innocent, and then you're vindicated. That judgment is reversed or turned, up, or turned right, right side up again. Suspicion's removed, blame is erased, and you're innocent after all, right? You've been vindicated. David is asking God to set the record straight about his life. You say, well, it certainly doesn't seem like he's preoccupied with God's glory there. It seems like he's kind of all concerned about David. Well, as we keep reading, we understand that he's not being false or phony. This is why he uses the word of integrity there, of walk in my integrity. Uh, we could think of integrity with a couple of different word pictures. One that might work for our understanding in this psalm would be like a bridge. You would want to drive over a bridge that, is, that has integrity. You would want all the pieces of that bridge in all the right places on that bridge before you drove across it. So it would have the strength and stability to, to, to hold your weight up. And David is describing his life as of being integrity. is not claiming sinless perfection here. But he is saying that he has been pursuing God with wholehearted trust. He's not being false or phony. He's not pretending. He has a wholehearted trust that's centered on God. And he's connecting, again, if we connect our understanding of Psalm 26 with what came before in Psalm 25, David is confessing that he has depended on God's guidance. He has been casting himself upon God to be the one that, uh, in whom all of his trust is. And so since he's confessing that, 
He's trusted in the Lord without wavering. He wants God to vindicate his life as an example of trust in the Lord. David opens up his life before God's all-seeing scrutiny in verse 2. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. That's not an expression of self-righteousness because people who are self-righteous don't ask God to examine them. They are fine if others examine them because they can just keep pretending and keep trumpeting their own acts of self-righteousness. But every self-righteous person knows that God's gaze is too bright. It pierces right through the fog of our pretend. What David is saying, Lord, search me, try me. I have focused my trust in you. He's not being self-righteous. He's submitting himself to an examination of his heart and mind. In other words, intellectually and emotionally, his trust has been wholehearted in the Lord. In verse 1, he says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Really, that second part of verse 1 is where we see the preoccupation with God's glory. David is making his plea to God for vindication, not on the grounds of his righteous actions, even though it may look like that as he keeps going, but I'll, I'll show you it's not what's happening. But he's making his plea for vindication on the grounds of God's trustworthiness. So the emphasis of the word order here in the text is this. When he says, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, the emphasis would be this then for the next part of verse 1. Um, make sure I get this right. I have it written down. In the Lord I have trusted. That's what he's putting the emphasis on as he's describing his trust. It's not that, look at me, God, look how I have trusted in you, but he is writing it with this emphasis, in the Lord I have trusted. And so what David is wanting to do is, as king of Israel, right, this public figure of leadership for Israel, he wants everyone that is watching him to see the blessed life that goes with walking in wholehearted trust in God's guidance. If his life starts to un, uh, unravel and, and people start to speculate, well, trusting in the Lord doesn't work out, it, God can't be trusted, God is a sham, it doesn't work out, it's not worthwhile, David is pleading for God to vindicate him because he is a public example of trust in the Lord. He wants the name of the Lord to be praised as people see a life lived in unwavering trust in the Lord. In verse 3, for your steadfast love, O Lord, is before my eyes. Again, David is running his request for vindication back to the steadfast love of the Lord. That's what he wants people to see. This is what he wants people to understand. The fierce, covenant-keeping, loyal love of God is the focus of David's trust. So in other words, in this opening lines of the psalm, David cries out for vindication so that God's name is exalted. That's why he's crying out. Notice the order of verse 3 and what follows. He confesses the steadfast love of the Lord is always before his eyes. It's what he's walking in is God's faithfulness, not his own. But it does produce a life that is faithful. In verse 4, he says that he keeps a firm gaze on God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And then in verse 5 and 6 and, and following, you start to see what that looks like. When God's steadfast love is ever before our eyes, when we walk in a conscious awareness of God's faithfulness, we're not going to use lies and backstabbing. That's what he's writing about in verse 4. Uh, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. He, you're not going to use lies and backstabbing or hypocritical tactics as your strategy to get ahead in life. You're trusting in God's guidance. In verse 5, when God's steadfast love and faithfulness preoccupy the affections of our heart, we're not going to find joyful satisfaction in the evil actions of wicked people or, or try to follow in those wicked actions. This is a good place for us to pause and ask ourselves, what do we keep in front of our eyes? 
And again, this is not speaking only for what are we reading or looking at, although it would include that for sure, yes, our physical eyes. But again, the term eyes is referring to the preoccupation of the mind and the heart. You see in verse 2, Lord, search my mind, search my heart. Then in verse uh, verse. Um, and verse 3 talks about this is what I keep before my eyes. So he's really talking about his inner person, the preoccupations of his affections. When he has time to daydream, this is what fills his thoughts, God's steadfast love and faithfulness. I wonder, what do we keep in the preoccupation of our mind, of our eyes? What's been on David's heart and mind is God's steadfast love. And friends, this isn't a duty for us to perform. You don't go into an art gallery and, you know, the, the, the people there, you know, welcoming you say, now you have to look at the art. Well, you're at an art gallery. Of course you're going to look at the art. This is why you're there, to see these beautiful works of art. What David is basically saying is he gets to live in the art gallery of God's glory, of God's beauty, of God's magnificence. This is what he is choosing to keep in front of his affections. Really, this is another way of saying that David is gospel-centered. Um, the, the, the steadfast love of the Lord that David keeps talking about, God's faithfulness that David keeps talking about, is the gospel. It's the good news of Christianity where we learn that the steadfast love of the Lord is given to sinners like you and me through the person and work of Jesus Christ, delivering us and forgiving us from our sin and making it possible for us to have a relationship with God forever. God, the God-man Jesus, gave his life and died a sacrificial death in our place, so that all who embrace him by faith will be called the children of God. And to live like David with the steadfast love of the Lord on our heart and mind means for us to be gospel-centered. This removes all notions of self-righteousness. Right? We don't relate to one another then if we're preoccupied with God's steadfast love. We don't relate to one another through uh, status in society or accomplishments in society or our upbringing or our wealth or any other accomplishment other than this. Our sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ destroys racism. It destroys any sense of class entitlement. It destroys any sense of inequality in the sense of who we are as individual people before the Almighty God. So God delights in guiding sinners, Psalm 25. In Psalm 26, David is praying for the glory of God to be seen in his life as someone who is walking in the guidance of God. I wonder, do you know God's steadfast love and faithfulness like the way David describes it? In this real saving way, in this life-giving way, in this heart-cherishing, affection-grabbing kind of way. In verses 4 and 7, it explains some of the conflict that David is surrounded by. Sometimes we might read a psalm and we might think that David's life is kind of rosy and, you know, just blessed and cherished, you know. God chose him and anointed him and established him and promised to him. And man, David just kind of had a charmed life. But the more you read about David's life, the more you realize his life wasn't charmed. He was surrounded by enemies, and often he was his own worst enemy. And that makes him a very relatable character, doesn't it? But in verses uh, 4 and 7 uh, through 7, he's describing this is what's around him hypocrites and people who speak in falsehood and evildoers and wicked people and this is the description of those that are around him. And so what happens is, he, it seems like the world around him seems to think that the way to get ahead is through hypocritical actions and backstabbing tactics and pursuing wicked, um, wicked strategies. And David is not walking that way. He's walking in a way of God's guidance. 
And so he pleads for God's glory to be seen. Verses 6 through 8 really are, I think, some of the most, um, oh, what, how do you describe it? Enjoyable verses of the psalm. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Which, by the way, we did that together this morning in singing. We proclaimed aloud. We were telling one another of God's deeds. Verse 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. The phrases about washing hands and going around the altar are words that would remind the Old Testament reader of the tabernacle or temple worship of God. Old Testament worshipers would wash their hands for ceremonial uh, cleansing. I know this is a stretch. We're not doing ceremonial cleansing when we have hand sanitizer there at the door and we've got wet wipes going around. It's not the same thing, but it kind of is a little visible a picture of being mindfulness of cleansing. We're not doing that ceremonially because we have, the, we have the completed work of Christ, okay, and his sacrifice. But just trying to add a little picture of, of some of the, the, the rituals that they would have called to mind as they read words like this. And in these verses, David admits that he finds his greatest joy in telling others about God's mighty deeds. He finds his sole delight, right? I love the habitation of your house. He finds a sole delight in God's glory. Now, those words, the habitation of your house, are, that's a kind of a mouthful of biblical-sounding words. Uh, so I want to just give us a little bit of um, biblical theology on this idea of God's house so that we can better appreciate the excitement that David feels for the glory of God. In Psalm 26, right, David is expressing love for God's glory. And you say, well, I don't see the word glory in there. Well, that's what he means when he talks about, I love the habitation of your house. Well, I'm going to make sure that he is not in love with the brick and mortar of a particular place. Or in David's day, it would have been like the tabernacle, that idea. Um, it's not like he's, he's in love with this geographical place just because it's kind of nostalgic. It's because of what happens there and what shows up there that makes it so significant. And to us, for us to understand this, we're going to need to go back to Moses. Now, don't panic. We're not going to spend too long on this. But I think if we string together how God has unfolded his redemptive plan, and in so doing, how he's shown his glory through his redemptive plan, we're going to have a better appreciation for the excitement David feels here. And of all times, right, in our, in our history together as, as, a, as a church family, with all this COVID restrictions and now us being able to gather together, we are uniquely poised, even in those circumstances, to, I think, experience even more so the excitement alongside of our, our elder brother David here did uh, for God's glory. David might be remembering when he's writing about the habitation of your house, he might be remembering all the way back to Moses. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses uh, says to God, um, he says, please show me your glory. Uh, which there's a whole sermon just in that phrase. Like, what would you want God to show you? His power, his might, his wisdom, or what? David, or, or Moses, sorry if I get these names mixed up, just filter them through what we're talking about. We're talking about Moses right now. Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, this is God replying, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name. So God's goodness and his name is his glory. The Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. All of this is God's glory here, folks. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What happened to Moses? Well, did God show his glory? Yes, that's what happened in Exodus 34, just a few verses on in your reading. Beginning in verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And if you understand that God's glorious presence was made visible to the people of Israel in this pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. So his, he comes in this cloud and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Well, this is a wonderful story for Moses, but what about the rest of God's people? Well, in the unfolding redemptive plan of God, Israel's worship of the Lord eventually centered on a place called the tabernacle, this temporary dwelling place that was put together with specific guidelines and instructions, and that's where the worship of the Lord took place. And we're told that the glory of the Lord once rested on the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 40, beginning in verse 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. That's the habitation of the house of the Lord, to use David's vernacular in Psalm 26. The cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This house of worship where David finds his soul's deepest joy and satisfaction because in his day, that's where God's glory dwelt. Well, later on in Israel's history, the temple, right? King David's son, Solomon, builds this temple, and it's this magnificent structure dedicated for the worship of God, and, David, and Solomon is giving a prayer of dedication for the temple, and it's recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer of dedication for the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord in the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, here it is, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And that sounds exactly like what the Lord told Moses all the way back in Exodus chapter 34 and 35. So as awesome as these displays of God's glory are, that David had in mind for God's glory, the excitement of being near God in that way, we might think, well, where's our temple? Is it this structure here, Highlands Baptist Church at 1510 East Phillips Avenue? No, it's not. You know, please don't, don't get upset quick because we have something better. We're told that the glory of God in our age isn't just dwelling in a physical structure anymore. There's something much better. In John chapter 1, we're told that the word became flesh. The, the logos of the God became flesh and dwelt, there's that word, dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, there it is again, tying it into God's redemptive plan of his glory being shown to his people through Moses, when he put him in the cleft, through the tabernacle with a cloud descending and the temple with fire coming down. What's going to top that? Jesus. We have seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Colossians chapter 1, it's described this way, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell 
So you may be thinking, okay, David's all excited about being near the house of God because that's where the glory of God is. And he's excited about experiencing God in this glorious way. And you might be thinking, well, where are we supposed to go? You just told us we can't come to this building thinking that that's where the glory of God is. Well, in a way, kind of yes, in this sense, because we have the Holy Spirit of God. Christ ascended in glory to God the Father. God the Spirit has now come and indwells all who are in Christ. So this is what we have then. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I know there's a lot of theological phrases in there. What I want for you to understand from that passage is all the words us, 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 and how God has given us Christ in his glory. And you say, so what does this mean then? Well, all of this means then that as Christians, we together as the people of God are where the glory of God dwells. Paul wrote about it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you, and the word you is the plural you. So if you were Southern, you would say y'all. Do you, plural, not know that you, again, plural, are God's temple? Here we are connecting these two ideas together. And that God's spirit dwells in you. There it again, where the glory of God dwells. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you, plural, are that temple. So friends, Christian family, I, I know we've been not able to gather together, but I hope that there is in your heart, and I think this is true, that there is this yearning to be together because we together, we know, we sense and experience something that we can create on our own, and it's the, it's the glory of God dwelling in us as the people of God together, not because we're spectacular, or we've accomplished this, or we've earned it, or we're righteous for it, but because it is pleasing to God to guide sinners through the forgiveness of Christ so that we get together and we proclaim God's mighty deeds and we sing together that it is well with our soul because our, all of our sin, do you get that in that verse we sang? All of our sin has been paid for through Christ. So maybe we can capture some of the excitement that David writes in verse 8. Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house. This is not some sort of, well, the doors are open, I'm there, kind of, you know, old rule-following type of um, um, spirit. This is a delight and pre preoccupation with the glory of God that has so captured David's soul that that is where his joy and full satisfaction is experienced. I wonder if our understanding and appreciation and love for God's people needs to be adjusted by this reality. I mean, David loves where God's glory dwells. Do you? <laughs> Do we focus so quickly on the imperfections and shortcomings of the bride of Christ, the church, so much so that we can no longer see and love the glory of God that is in his redeemed people? Or maybe we need to do some honest examination and confession of just sin and pride. If there is sin in our life that it acts like a fog bank preventing the glory of God from being seen in us. So you realize what's at stake with us as a church family is not just having kind of well-ordered organization but it's so that our surrounding communities, remember our mission statement as a church is to display God's glory. We can't do that if we've got log jams of sin and pride in our lives. If our affections are pulled so that we really don't have any room left in our hearts to get excited about God. I might say, okay, all this talk about loving God and his glory sounds great, but 
didn't I say that this whole psalm was driving for that last verse? And, and it does. And we're going to see this then in the conclusion, which is looking at that second half. We're going to see all this come together when David describes a stable life as the result of following in God's guidance and having a life preoccupied with God's glory. In verse 9, David humbly depends on God's forgiveness. You see that? Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. This is another way of saying, God, forgive me for my sin. Don't treat me in, a, in accordance with, this, with, with my sin. Again, another evidence that David's opening confession of integrity and his prayer for vindication is not a sense of self-righteous accomplishment. Here he casts himself upon God's redeeming grace, and that theme is going to carry through to the end of this chapter of Psalm 26. When you look in verse 11, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. There he is again. He starts with just expressing his integrity. He goes back to his in in integrity. And again, this isn't self-made righteousness. This is him confessing that he has given wholehearted trust in the Lord. He has wholehearted trust in God's redeeming grace, verse 11. Redeem me and be gracious to me. Here's the core, the key of a stable life. A life centered on the grace of God is stable through and through. Through and through. We could spend time looking at all sorts of different examples in the Old Testament. One that comes to mind is uh, the three Hebrews that were told to bow down to the idol and worship, and they didn't. Remember that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're pulled before the king, and the king threatens them, if you don't bow down, I'm going to heat the furnace up, throw you in, and kill you. And these, you would think that would be one of the most in, uh, what's the right wording? For their experience, that would have been a very unstable experience, right? I mean, threat of death if you don't do this. Everything is turned upside down, all right? They don't know if they're going to see tomorrow because of what they've just been threatened with. Everything seems to be unstable, yet their response to that threat is very stable. They, they respond to the king saying, listen, we're not going to worship you. We worship Jehovah, and Jehovah can deliver us, but even if God, Jehovah doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to worship you. I mean, it's just like they cut right through the thick of all that threatenings, like, like a hot knife through butter. It's like they just kind of carry on. And I'm, I'm probably simplifying the emotional turmoil going on in their hearts, right? And in, in and through all that. But that's just one example of how stability can exist even through turmoil like that when your whole confidence is in God's redeeming grace. Really, when the worst of this life when the teeth of the worst of this life are removed eternally because of the grace of Jesus Christ, when Paul describes this, when, listen, it's better to be with the Lord, when the best for us as Christians is yet to come, then then what do we then find ourselves faced with such turmoil about? It's often because we find ourselves thinking that the grace of God that has redeemed us eternally is insufficient for the lesser problems of our life. I'm not diminishing the problems of our life right now. They are real and big and consequential. What I'm trying for us to do is realize that God's redeeming grace is bigger yet. But we just don't see it. We're not hearing it. Or maybe we've heard it right here. We've, we've heard the sound of God's voice from his word, but we haven't really listened because we, in the sense that we don't understand what he really means. I wonder, in what do you trust? And what are you looking to give you stability in life? Are you striving to create it through your best efforts of moral living? You're going to have a tumultuous life. It's going to be highs when you feel like you're doing well and really low lows when you prove to yourself and everyone around you that you can't. 
Are you seeking level ground through career accomplishments or the accumulation of wealth? But wealth is fickle and can be erased in an instant, and jobs can change quickly. Haven't the headlines shown us that? Psalm 26 invites us into the stable life of trusting wholeheartedly in God's redeeming grace and his steadfast love. Have you ever stood in something that wasn't level? Um, I, I remember going on a backpacking trip and crossing some rivers, and those rivers were, you would, we would inch across with, with you know, a backpack on, on these logs. And I don't know why, but it seemed like, I, whoever makes those crossings, right? They just are there. But I've often wondered, why do they pick these logs? Because they're so unstable, or they're narrow, and they wobble, and it makes the crossing so much more treacherous because there's these little logs that are constantly moving every time you pick up your foot and put your foot down again. God's redeeming grace is not a flimsy log crossing in life. It doesn't just get you across. God's redeeming grace is the firmest of all foundations, so much so that David could say in verse 12, my foot stands on level ground. I mean, has God vindicated him? I don't know. I mean, it doesn't really show that in this text. He's crying out for it. But even so, even if the wicked in verse 4 and the evildoers in verse 5 and the hypocrites in verse 4 and those that are speaking lies in verse 4, even if they get their way for a while, David still, his, his conclusion is this, my foot stands on level ground. 